We're continuing our series, Kingdom Come, in the Gospel of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 5, so we're, we're making headway through Luke's Gospel. You can turn with me there. We're going to look at the first 11 verses. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer? Well, Father, we just want to start by acknowledging, Lord, in your sovereignty and in your wisdom, you are a God who, who takes finite people and, and small visions and does incredible things. So Lord, we, we thank you for what you are doing at Forest Avenue. Thank you for what you're doing through Ken's ministry. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you have strengthened him for that task. Lord, I pray that you would be with Ken and all the workers there at Forest Avenue. Lord, continue granting them power in the midst of their weakness that they might boast and testify that you are the one who produces and gives growth. And Lord, we pray for those women. Lord, I ask that you would sustain them or that you would help them to see tangibly how a warm bed and a warm meal is an expression of the gospel of your provision of your son, Jesus. And Lord, I pray that through the spot, the power of your spirit, you would continue ministering to those women and those children, Lord. Bring them to your Son. Bring them to saving faith. Lord, bring fruit in this ministry through the faithfulness of Ken and all those others. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, my dad was a fisherman. And not a vocational fisherman, but a fisherman nonetheless. I can remember as a little kid, we would get invited into his office sometimes. You know, he would go into the office to work late, and every once in a while, my brother and I would get to go. And there were just things that you would do in Dad's office. Sometimes he wasn't on the computer, and so you'd get to play solitaire for a while. Other times, you would just go to the copy machine and make wonderful copies of your face, and then your hand, and you'd change the sizes. And it's amazing how fascinating you can be by a copy machine for hours on end. But my dad's office was also filled with little like trinkets and, and mementos, and, and some of it was sports memorabilia from, from his football days. Other was just teams that he loved. But a lot of it had to do with fishing. And I distinctly remember he had one little, little plaque, little ceramic deal he had on the wall. It was sort of a cheesy little cartoonish thing. But basically saying, even the worst day fishing is better than the best day at work. <laughs> Which I always kind of thought in hindsight, I wonder what his boss thought when he would walk into my dad's office and see the little sign basically saying, I kind of hate my job and I wish I was in a boat (laughs) with a a pole in the water. But my dad loved to fish. And and he wasn't a bass fisherman, he was a walleye fisherman. That's what he fished for. And he he was a master at cleaning the walleye. I remember we'd, we'd eat fish that my uncle had cleaned and you had to eat carefully so you didn't get any bones. But when my dad would fillet a walleye, you could just dig in. He would always batter it in shore lunch and then, and then deep fry it, you know, so it's good and greasy and wonderful. And you get the tartar sauce. And we'd have these fish fries. And I remember sort of a coming-of-age event. He took, my, he took me one time with him on one of his legendary trips to South Dakota. He would go to South Dakota, and he would go fishing for walleye on the river. And he, had, he used to have this, this radio show where he would do the fishing report on Saturday mornings. And so he would go to this little... This little cafe in town, and it's just like exactly like you'd picture, like little Norman Rockwell Americana, like all the old guys sitting around with their cups of coffee, like stalling, going to work in the morning, and they would just talk about fishing and about life, and my dad would gather all the information, and every Saturday morning he'd go on the radio and give the fishing report, like where things are biting at which, which lakes, and that 
had gotten him this in with, with a tackle provider and, this, and company, so he would get all this free gear. So free depth finders and, and, and free trolling motors and free rods and reels. And so you'd go watch my dad, and, and to go on a fishing trip was like a one-week preparation. You know, he, he'd be in the garage with his boat, like meticulously going over every piece of equipment. And then he'd get out there, and you'd see the master at work. He'd sit in the front of the boat, and he'd have like these water socks he would put out if it was too windy to slow down as they were coming, because you wanted walleye chop. You know, that's when the waves are coming, and you're bouncing, and so you're getting your, your fish on the line. So he'd get the socks out, and he'd have a trolling motor here, and he'd have two rods in his hand and a third in the holder. And so he'd be sitting there, and, and he's, he couldn't multitask in any other part of life, but he could multitask in a fishing boat. And so he'd be sitting there and fishing. I remember the one time I got to go with him. It wasn't the only time, but this was a significant one. Sort of a coming of age, 13, go with dad, camp on the river and fish. And the Lord blessed us because we slayed the walleyes. And in my mind, I doubt it was this number, but in my mind, I remember telling somebody in high school, yeah, we caught 300 walleye that weekend. I don't think we caught 300 walleye that weekend. But I remember it was this incredible time. I, I'm not really a fisherman. Like now when I go fishing with my dad, I usually bring a book. And so while he fishes, I read. But it was one of the funnest times. A, I was with my dad. But B, every time we cast into the water, it seemed like we caught a fish and pulled it in. And so for someone who doesn't love fishing, it was actually really fun fishing. And my dad was just on cloud nine. And of course... As the years went by, if you're a good fisherman, the story grows. The number of fish you caught increases. If you had heard him tell the story later in life, it would have sounded a little bit like our text. You would have thought we were just taking his little net and, and swooping it into the water and dumping fish into the boat. It almost sounded miraculous what we did that weekend. Well, in Luke's gospel, we hear a fishing story. And it's a big fishing story with a much more significant meaning behind the catching of the fish. So if you look with me there now in Luke chapter 5, read along from verses 1 to 11. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knee, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. The word of the Lord. May he write its truth upon our hearts. Well, I want to look at three things from the text this morning. We're going to look at the catch. We're going to look at the call. And then we're going to look at the calling. Okay? So first we see 
the catch. The scene takes place in a lake that Luke names Gennesaret, which is actually just another name for the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's a Gentile name for the same body of water. So they're in the Sea of Galilee, that, that familiar place in the Gospels. And we read at the start of the story, right, Jesus' fame is increasing. More and more people are hearing about him, and so the crowds just keep coming. He can no longer just teach in a synagogue. The crowds are too big. He has to be out in the open. And they've gotten so large that they're actually starting to, to crush in. It's like, a, it's like an ancient version of a human crush where you get these crowds of people and they just swarm so hard that it, it becomes dangerous. And, and so sensing that, Jesus finds a boat and he calls upon Simon to take him out into the water. But the reason the crowds are increasing can't be missed. Luke says they press in on Jesus specifically to hear the word of God. So there's this, this implicit recognition by the crowd, right? There's this recognition Jesus isn't a normal teacher. It's what he says, not what he cites. That's the word of God. The crowds are realizing there's, there's revelation coming from this man, like a prophet of old. And so sensing that, the crowds start to increase in number, and they start to get a little crazy, and they're literally pushing him out until he has nowhere to stand. So he calls on Simon, and he gets in the boat. Now that, that has two effects. The first is, obviously, as you push away from the shore, most of the crowd is going to stop at the water so they don't get wet, especially if you push far enough out, because now they'll start to sink. So he's finally got room. But it also has an acoustic effect, right? Because sound travels further on water, as my dad would tell me all the time when we were fishing. Shh, be quiet, you're going to scare the fish. I heard that all the time, especially when you're a little kid dropping things in the boat. So you push away from the shore, and now all of a sudden, the acoustic effect of a voice going across water is amplified. There's even a couple inlets on the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Gennesaret, where there's actually a natural, gentle rise, where if a crowd had sat there, it would have been a natural amphitheater. Maybe that's exactly where Jesus is teaching. In one of those little inlets, he pushes out from the boat, his voice is amplified. He's in one of those typical Galilean fishing boats, about 20 feet long, seven and a half feet wide, with a deck built into it. And he's sitting on the deck, his voice projecting out over the water, the crowds sitting on the gentle rise of the inlet, listening to a man teach with authority like they've never heard before. But it's when he's done speaking that things really start to get interesting. He tells Simon, who he'll later rename Peter, right? He tells Simon, put the boats back out. Go deeper. Go a little bit deeper out and put your nets back in the water again. Now, to give you a little context, here's what that means for Simon and his partners. They've just spent the entire night fishing. And normally, you don't fish at night. If you go fishing at night, you've got to have some really special gear. When we go fishing, we don't fish at night because it's hard for the fish to see the bait. You put your bait in the water, or your jig in the water, or your spinner, and the fish have a hard time seeing it in the darkness of the water, so you don't typically fish at night. But this is a different kind of fishing, isn't it? They don't fish with a rod and reel, right? They don't have a trolling motor. They fish with nets. And so you do the opposite. You fish at night with nets, because at night, the fish can't see the net. If you fish during the day, the fish can see the net, and they can avoid the net. And so this really bizarre thing, Jesus tells them, go out in the middle of the day. They're probably exhausted, right? They've been fishing all night. 
He encounters them on the shore after a night of fishing and they're mending their nets. So it's like they're at the very end of their day. They're tired. They're worn out. They're mending their nets. They're about to cash in. <laughs> this this demanding physical job. And Jesus says, one more time, let's go back out in the least likely time of the day for you to catch fish. And let's cast out the nets again. On the one hand, this seems futile. You don't fish in the daylight. But on another hand, it could almost seem offensive, couldn't it? These guys are fishermen by trade. They don't have a sign in their office like my dad. Like What they do is fishing. That is their job. Maybe if you do it as a job, it becomes different. <laughs> Maybe it's not the best thing ever. But is it a little offensive that this guy who, great, you're an authoritative teacher. <laughs> what are you going to teach us about fishing? And you kind of sense that. In, in some, <laughs> we were just out there all night. <laughs> like, we didn't catch anything. We... We do have a clue. Like the reason the nets are empty isn't because we're bad fishermen. The fish weren't there. But at your word, we'll, we'll do it. Yeah. So they, they push out. They push out again. In the middle of the day, as my dad would say, when the fish aren't biting, and they cast their nets. And you know the story. Their nets get overloaded. They're so overloaded, you can just picture them. They're gripping these nets over the side of the boat, and they're about to burst. There's this sense like they're literally about to rip apart. And so they're hauling these fish, and they're pulling as hard as they can. It's so bad that Simon has to call it to his other partners, James and Johnny. He calls them over, bring their boat alongside. The catch continues to increase to the point where both boats are grabbing the nets, pulling the fish into the boats, and the, the catch is so incredible, the boats are starting to sink. And you have to have in mind, like, these are businessmen, right? You don't build small boats if your business is catching fish and filling them with fish before you bring them to the shore. You build big, buoyant boats that can hold lots of fish. In other words, they're catching more fish as they're sinking. We can tell by the fact they're sinking. They're catching more fish than they ever imagined possible. So many fish that they're about to go down. It's an incredible catch. It's an amazing scene. The text actually says they were amazed. They were in awe at what was happening. It's a fishing story for all time. One that doesn't even need to be exaggerated by the fishermen in the retelling of the fishing tale. And in the midst of it, Simon drops the nets and falls to his knees before Jesus. And he cries out, Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, that's a strange thing. He's heard amazing teaching. He's just seen a miracle. You'd maybe expect worship, right? Maybe you expect gratitude. Thank you, Jesus! Come back tomorrow! No, he falls on his knees. Depart. Leave us. Because I'm a sinful man. The combination of Jesus' powerful teaching and this miracle convinces Peter, convinces Simon, that he's in the presence of holiness. And he's overcome by it. He, he senses the greatness of Jesus and the sinfulness of his own heart, and he longs to get away. Because he rightly discerns in that moment, here is someone who's holy, here is someone who's from God, and I am not. I'm one deserving of judgment. 
But we're doing that, that series right now on, on Tulip by John Piper. Last fall, we did one by R.C. Sproul on Sunday mornings called The Holiness of God. For those of you who were there, you remember him teaching. One of the poignant things he talked about in the Holiness of God series, R.C. Sproul, was how again and again in the Old Testament, when people encounter the living God, they are struck. When they encounter the living God, and he sort of pulls back the curtain for them to see him accurately, right? Again and again in the Old Testament, people don't start singing. They don't start getting giddy with excitement. They fall to their knees. They fall on their face and they cry out with terror and with fear. With a palpable sense of God's greatness and their unworthiness. Their sinfulness. It's the first time in the Gospel that Luke has used the phrase sinner. Again, here Luke shows us it's not like the crowds pressing in. Again and again, he talks about the crowds pressing in, but the crowds not really knowing who he is. The previous chapter, who pressed in? The crowds. Who wanted to flee? The demons who knew who Jesus was. And here Luke shows us again the crowds are pressing in, but someone who sees Jesus for who he really is, Simon, sees this holy man in front of him, and he's overcome by what he encounters. And it's deep with meaning. Because Jesus hasn't come for the healthy. He's come for the sick. He hasn't come for the righteous. He's come for the unrighteous. And when He first calls a man into discipleship, when He calls His first disciple, Peter, Luke very strategically tells us His first disciple is a confessed sinner. It's hugely important as we go through Luke's gospel, the Pharisees will have a definition of who a sinner is, right? For the Pharisees, a sinner is someone who is so defiled, so unclean, that they are now unworthy of God and unworthy of His grace. But Jesus has a different definition. In His calling of His first disciple, the disciple, the disciple-to-be confesses, I'm a sinner, and Jesus calls him anyway. That's what we see next. We see the call. The entire episode really isn't about the crowd. It's not really a message about the amazing catch. It's about Jesus marking out the first men who will follow him. And the first thing he says to Peter is, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Come, follow me. Is he telling Peter not to fear? Because Peter's afraid of who Jesus is? Or is he telling Peter not to fear because in the same sentence he's telling Peter to leave everything he knows to give it all up and follow this guy he's just met? I think it's probably both. And then he tells him, Peter, drop your nets, follow me. We're going to keep fishing, but for something else. And just like that, Peter drops his nets. It's classic Peter, isn't it? It's just classic, Jesus said it, I'll do it. Impulsive Peter. You get the sense he's hardly giving it a thought. But don't lose sight of what's happened. In his first encounter with Jesus, he's heard this incredible teaching. He's witnessed a miracle. He's just experienced this, this merciful assurance. He senses Jesus' holiness, and Jesus responds with mercy. Don't be afraid. Right? 
And in the midst of all that, Peter abandons everything he has known in his life without a second thought. Now, it, it can be easy, if, if you're familiar with the Gospels, to give Peter a bad rap, right? There, there's a lot of stuff that you can give Peter a hard time for. He's got blunders, he blurts things out that he probably shouldn't say, but then paints himself into a corner, and Jesus is constantly correcting him for not getting the message right. There's all sorts of things that you can kind of look at Peter and think, man, he just doesn't get it. But this isn't one of them. Peter knows from day one there's no turning back. And it's not just Peter hearing that call. It's not just Peter being called there. Luke intends for every single one of us this morning, every single one of the readers, every single person who encounters this gospel to hear that same call. Luke is putting a claim upon us as listeners this morning. Jesus saying to us, come, follow me. Many of you are probably familiar with with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you're not, he was a theologian who, who lived in the time of Hitler's rise to power in Germany. So he was a Christian theologian. He was a member of what they called the Confessing Church. So there's a huge part of the church in Germany at that time that just kowtowed to the Nazis, tried to curry political favor with them, and so kept their mouths shut as they saw atrocities happening and they saw the evil and the propaganda of the Nazi regime. A lot of the the visible church just kept silent, went along with it. But the Confessing Church, this this small group of, of true believers spoke out against it. Well, well, Bonhoeffer was a part of that confessing church. What a lot of people don't know is that Bonhoeffer actually escaped from Nazi Germany. He actually escaped from Nazi Germany. Friends of his in America who taught at schools over here, who were pastoring churches over here, pulled all sorts of strings to get him out of Germany in a time when they weren't letting anybody out of Germany. There was a clamor of people wanting to leave Germany. It was incredibly hard to get visas. All of Europe was really closing their doors to people in Germany who were trying to escape from Hitler. And Bonhoeffer, through the work of his friends, in 1939, so right at the outbreak of World War II, right as Hitler's about to invade Poland, he got out. Just barely made it out with his life. But he would only stay in America for 26 days. It wasn't because he had a a temporary visa. Eric Metaxas, one of Bonhoeffer's biographers, explains that the reason for Bonhoeffer's return was simple. In a nutshell, he goes back because he believed that God had called him to return. He went back because he knew his people and his congregation and the members of the confessing church that he had left didn't have the political connections like he did to escape. And so he went back to be with them for 26 days. Metaxas said, you can read his journals and his letters. He's wrestling with what he should do. And he's immersed himself in the scriptures and he's seeking to hear from God, believing that the Lord would speak to him through his word. And as he does that, he becomes convinced he's just gotten out 26 days in. All these people have have cashed in political chips to get him out, right? He says, no, I have to return. Reinhold Niebuhr and these other friends are like, you are insane. You can't go back. They know you've left. They know you escaped the dragnet. If you go back, you're eventually going to get imprisoned and you'll maybe die. For Bonhoeffer, the most important thing, though, wasn't to achieve his safety. 
He went back because obedience to God was the call in his life. Even in the face of almost certain death. To know God for Bonhoeffer, to know God was to obey him. If you really know God, you obey what he says. If you really know God, when he summons you, when he calls you, when he he puts something before you, you act in obedience. He knew that one day we would all die, but that you can't go wrong following God. And so with real, authentic faith, Bonhoeffer showed and he would argue If there was real faith, bravery was the most natural thing in the world. And so he went back to Nazi Germany. And despite what many of his friends and colleagues told him, begging him not to, he returned. And just as many feared, he was eventually imprisoned. And you probably know the story. He was eventually put to death. But not without leaving an incredible legacy for what it looks like to follow God in the midst of great obstacles. And it's in that context that we can understand more appropriately probably his most memorable quote. This is what Bonhoeffer says. Think think of that context now. A man returning to Germany to face likely eventual death. The cross, Bonhoeffer says, is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow Him. Or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man at His call. Luke is laying a claim upon us this morning. The Lord Jesus comes, and in this text and in these words, He calls to us, Come, follow Me. When Jesus calls us, He isn't necessarily saying you have to leave jobs, you have to drop out of school, you have to sell everything and move off to a distant land. Although He may be calling some of you to do that. But He is calling us, Jesus is calling every person in this room to a radical, exclusive obedience. A radical obedience to His Word and to His person. A call to, as Bonhoeffer so compellingly puts it, a call to abandon the attachments of the world. Why? Why go back to Germany and face death? Because the Lord has called me there. And because this isn't my home. That whatever we do going forward to answer that call is to say whatever we do going forward, we will put Jesus at the center of it. That whatever we would consider taking up, we would first lay it at the feet of Jesus and put it before Him and and willingly give it up if He would call us to do it. 
So that our going out and our coming in, our toil and labor, the work of our hands, the creativity of our minds, the way we steward our resources and our time, every aspect of how we live our lives would be expended towards one end, the end of Jesus receiving glory and in service to His kingdom. That's the calling that He is giving to Peter in this text. Lay down your nets. Come, follow me. We're going to keep catching things, but now it's going to be living men. And it's the same calling He's giving to all people who would hear His voice. That's the call. That's what His voice is saying. What's the calling itself? Jesus doesn't just call Peter to follow. He calls him to a task, right? We see the first glimpse of the task that Peter gets called to. It's not just, hey, tag along. He's calling Peter to a mission. Follow me. And what are they going to do? We're going to start catching people. We're going to start catching living men. Now we realize finally at this point in the story why exactly Jesus performed the miracle with the catch of fish. It's not just to convince Peter to follow. Hey, look, I can do magic tricks. (laughs) Come follow me. You'll see more of them. Some people pull rabbits out of hats. I pull fish out of water. That's that's not what's going on. Peter isn't just the first disciple. He's called, he's meant to be the first disciple maker. That's what's going on in this text. Before he caught fish in his nets, now he's going to catch men in the nets of God's grace. That's the vision that Jesus is putting before him. And just like it was futile to catch fish in his own strength the night before, With the power of God at his disposal, he'll now encounter a miraculously bountiful catch of people for the kingdom. Not because he's Peter, not because there's some really natural transition from being a fisherman to being a disciple maker. No, but because God in his grace, in his power, is at work to build his kingdom through ordinary means, through through ordinary people. Peter is presented to us as the most ordinary of characters. He's not the star pupil of the synagogue. He doesn't have a a fishing empire. Just him and some partners with two boats. Stinking like fish. Come and follow. Maybe take a shower first and follow me. The whole thing is a play on words. Literally, Jesus says they'll be catching men alive. But the word is usually used in the context of war, that word for catching. It's usually referred to catching people alive so you can take them as prisoners of war. Catch them alive, right, so they can be your bounty, so you can sell them into slavery or or parade them in front of people before you put them to death. That's what the phrase usually means. It's got this terribly negative connotation. When you read it in the rest of Greek literature, it's always almost in the context of warfare or hunting. Catch something alive so you can kill it and eat it, Or you can sell it into slavery. Luke flips the imagery on its head. Peter and James and John will be taking prisoners of war, yes, in a cosmic battle, but as they catch men alive, they'll be bringing them under the joyful yoke of Jesus. Come with me. We're going to catch men. And their trophies will be trophies not of death and destruction, but trophies of God's grace. And again, Luke's point isn't just 
merely to describe what happened to the first disciples. In the broader context of Luke-Acts, these two books that Luke wrote, they're really two volumes of a longer story, right? You kind of need to get your minds around it. It's like Lord of the Rings, right? Really one book, but they get published in three, three volumes. This is Luke-Acts, really one story published in two volumes. That's what's going on here. Well, in, in the broader context, that compendium volume of Acts, we see that it's not just Peter's calling. It's not just Paul's calling. It's the calling of the entire early church called and empowered to go out to the ends of the earth and make disciples. The church takes that call and lives on mission in powerful ways in the book of Acts. And our mission as a church is to be the same thing. It's why if you go to our website, you click on mission, it says... Our mission, to be a community of disciples who treasure, who declare, and who mature in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is at the center of who we are, but we are a community of disciples. And if you're a disciple, you're a disciple maker. You have the same calling that Peter and the disciples had. To be disciple makers, to celebrate the gospel by making and maturing disciples. You make disciples. You multiply disciples. You mature disciples. You deepen their, their communion with Christ for the glory of God, by the power of the Spirit, for the joy of all peoples. To borrow a phrase from, from John Piper. That's our direction and our goal as a church. To fully engage ourselves in Christ's disciple-making commission to the church. It's not a fad that on our website it says, we are a community of disciples. We're here to treasure. We're here to declare. We're here to mature in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, it's not a fad because for 2,000 years, the Bible has laid that claim, that calling upon churches. You, church, gathering of people, from the ends of the earth, once you were not a people, now you are a people, not just a people, you're disciples. You are called here in this place to stir each other up in the task of disciple making. To mature one another, to pour into one another, to care for one another, to love one another, to exhort one another, to rebuke one another, to pray for one another, to serve one another, to have hospitality with one another, to pour your lives out for one another, that you would be matured, that you would deepen in your love and affection and your commitment to Jesus Christ. And that you would be disciple makers. That you would go out out into your neighborhoods and your communities, to your jobs, to your gyms, to your schools. And that you would bear witness through your words, your proclamation of the gospel, and your deeds, the way you serve and love those around you. That Jesus is real. That he was raised. That he is reigning. That's not accidental. That wasn't just the mission statement for the first 40 years of the church. And now we're on to bigger and better things. Now the mission statement is have really cool music. Now the mission statement is have really awesome programs. Now the mission statement is have fog machines like Seth referenced last week, right? No, it's still the same mission. Be disciple makers. Be disciples who are making and maturing disciples. We see in Luke that being a disciple and making disciples is the very DNA of Christianity. Disciple making isn't like this optional, like, man, when you get really mature, like, you, there's like graduate courses, like Cub Scouts, right? It's like Boy Scouts. You, you kind of, there's merit badges, like the final badge, it's like the Eagle Scout badge, and there's like the disciple making badge. 
I'm a disciple maker. No, it's like you're a Christian and now you're in the process of, of being made a disciple. And while you're doing it, you should be making disciples. We have this misconception that it's only like super Christians that make disciples. It's only the Peters and the Pauls or the pastors or the care group leaders. Those are the people that make disciples. Missionaries make disciples. Seminary professors make disciples. Really mature, older members of a congregation make disciples. That's not the vision we see in Acts. Members of the body, all members of the body, make disciples. Mature disciples. To be a Christian, to be a Christ follower, that's a phrase with a little more claim on it, isn't it? Christian can kind of get watered down in our culture. But to be a Christ follower is to be a disciple maker. It's not optional. Luke will show us in his gospel and the stories of the early church in Acts, sharing the love of Christ is the natural and necessary product of having experienced Christ. If you have encountered the living Christ, if he has caused you to be born again, if he has breathed new spiritual life into your soul, you know what happens? You're drawn to discipleship. Put another way, if you're in Christ, that phrase appears again and again and again in Paul's letters, right? In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. In Christ is Paul's shorthand for a Christian. If you are in Christ, a.k.a. if you're saved, if you're born again, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, if you are in Christ, then you will be driven, if you are in Christ, to freshly bring others into Christ. Or to take those who are already in Christ with you deeper into Christ. You see the vision of disciple making? If you're in Christ, you have a, a heavy burden on your soul to see those who aren't in Christ brought into Christ. If you are in Christ, you have a burden as you fellowship and you walk through life with others who are in Christ to go with them hand in hand deeper into Christ. In those great words of C.S. Lewis, further up and further in. You're called to be a disciple maker, one who multiplies and matures disciples. It's, that's why we don't do altar calls at Providence. That's a very shallow gospel that simply says, accept Jesus. In, invite Jesus into your heart and everything will be okay. I, I see nothing in, in the New Testament that talks about accepting Jesus. I see stuff about repenting and believing into Jesus. I see nothing about, about magical phrases, about believing in Jesus and welcoming into your heart. There's no magical prayer in the New Testament where you pray that prayer and you get a special card you can put in your wallet that on the final day when, when they're asking, who, who do I let in? I got this card from Billy Graham. That's, that's not what it's about. It's not about simple prayers and get-out-of-hell-free cards. That, that's a tame Jesus. That's a far, far cry from the Jesus Peter encountered. It's a far cry from the Jesus that Billy Graham preached. The Jesus who had Peter trembling in fear and crying out, Depart from me. Please leave. I'm sinful. We are not about making decisions at Providence. 
We're not going to have tally marks of how many decisions we made this year at Providence. That's not what we're about. You know what we're about? Not decisions. We're about disciples. About making and maturing disciples. And that's a lot harder to quantify. And it's a lot harder to pursue. But it's also what the Spirit empowers. People who encounter the fullness of the gospel, their great sin, God's real wrath against that rebellion, against those specific sins, those specific sins being against Him, and God pouring out wrath against those specific sins, and then the immeasurable mercy of God that He has sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. That Jesus comes because we are sinful, because God, yes, He's a God of love, but He's also a God of wrath, who's angry against His creation that rebels against him and so in love and to satisfy his wrath he sends his son to be the propitiation for our sins to be a wrath deflecting a wrath absorbing sacrifice that you are a sinner who deserves wrath and in love god sends his son to stand before you to stand in front of you and absorb that wrath and deflect that wrath on your behalf that's the gospel that we proclaim that's the gospel that doesn't say now sign a card and make a decision and then go live life like you've always lived it before It's the gospel that says he sent his son to take your place and be consumed by the holy, infinite, just wrath of the Father so that he would have all of you for all of eternity. Disciples are by their very nature disciple makers. Discipleship without replication is not discipleship. That's implicit in Jesus' calling of Peter. You'll be my disciple because we're going fishing. (laughs) You're going to make other disciples. When Jesus says, follow me, now we're going to be catching men alive. He's not just giving Peter bland instructions. He's giving him the nuts and bolts of discipleship. You know what it means to be a disciple? A disciple follows Jesus. A disciple follows Jesus. A disciple is changed by Jesus. And a disciple influences others for Jesus. That's what discipleship is. You see it all in Peter, don't you? Right? He, he follows Jesus. He immediately drops his nets and he goes. I'm leaving everything behind. This is the job I know. This is the community I know. My family's here. All of my security's here. And I've encountered, the, I've encountered Christ. I'm dropping it all and I'm going, I'm following. It, it changed by Jesus. You're going to see Peter through the Gospels and especially in Acts, right? Change as he encounters Jesus. And then he's going to go and he's going to influence others for Jesus. So committed to influencing others for Jesus that like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he, he's going to die for the sake of that influencing work. Here's some sobering mindsets. Some attitudes that I think we should wrestle with. I think they they reveal someone who hasn't come to grips with the implications of discipleship and disciple making. That that element's at the core of who we want to be as a church. I think it's very sobering if you look at this mindset and you realize this isn't someone who gets it. Someone who who treats gathering with God's people in worship like like a casual thing. I just stroll in. I'm still checking Twitter updates. 
ESPN updates, making a Facebook post, checking email. Maybe I don't even come in because it's pretty easy to find an excuse not to come. Someone who treats the gathering with God's people in worship as a casual thing, that they've missed the heart of being a disciple. When we rarely meet with other believers for intentional relationships involving prayer and engaging with God's Word and accountability and confession and fellowship and, and living out of the one another's, when we, when we aren't committed to those kind of intentional relationships, relationships where discipleship happens, it reveals we lack a heart of being a disciple. When we have no real burden for the eternal destiny of the unbelievers that God has placed in our lives. Unbelieving family members. Unbelieving neighbors. If I'm thinking of myself, guys I play basketball with at the gym, I know their names. I know about them. Have, have I shared Jesus with them? You're missing the heart of being a disciple. When you, how you go about everyday life, when the way you live your life testifies more to Jesus as an addendum, as this, this little thing you've kind of tacked on, than to Jesus as Lord and Savior, you've missed the heart of being a disciple. Luke is showing us at the very outset of the gospel here, at the very initial calling of Peter and James and John, that mission is not optional. That, that's what this whole story is about. You're called. Come follow me. We're not going to go on mission together. Mission is not optional. Disciple making is not a faddish thing. It's our mission as a church because we see in the Scriptures that it's our calling as believers to be a community of disciples who treasure, who declare, and who mature in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Just like Peter, if we are disciples, then we're called to be disciple-makers. And here's some really good news. Just like Peter, even when we lose sight of the mission, when we stray into me-centered pursuits rather than kingdom-centered ones, when we start to get the message wrong, we start to get the message confused, we just forget the message altogether. Just like Peter, there is mercy. There's a merciful Christ, a merciful Jesus, waiting to forgive us and restore us. How many times in the Gospel, as we go forward, are we going to see Peter and the other disciples getting it wrong? <laughs> hey, I'm a disciple. Does that mean I get to sit at your left and right when you come into power? We're disciples. Who do you love the most? We're your disciples. We've been with you from the from the start. We're, we're the, the 12, closer than the, kind of the other people even. What goodies do we get? Peter. You can't suffer and die. That, that can't be part of the plan. Get behind me, Satan slash Peter. And time and again, Jesus is merciful to correct and to forgive and to restore. And just like that calling that Peter gets continues today, that mercy that he receives again and again and again is ours today. 
and just like Peter, the miraculous catch of an insane amount of fish testifies that God in His grace is the one who fills our nets. We don't have to obsess about numbers. We don't have to track our successes and our decisions. We need to seek faithfulness. Faithfulness as a church seeking to make disciples, to multiply disciples. Seeking to raise the people who obey His Word, who proclaim His Word, and then just to go out and cast our nets into the sea of Kansas City, trusting that just like in the Sea of Galilee, God will fill our nets. Would you bow your heads? Lord, I pray that you would continue to stir up in our hearts a sense of commitment to the calling to make disciples. Lord, move us from having words on a website, words in a sermon, but Lord, to having hearts and lives committed to the calling you have given your people to be disciples who make disciples. And Lord, I pray that you would empower us for this task. We are helpless without you. Lord, I confess, we confess it is daunting to think of sharing with people, of engaging in conversations, of, of broaching the topic. It's, it's intimidating to, to think of going into our city and our culture. But Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us, that you would strengthen our needs for the task at hand, that you would build our faith knowing that You are the one that fills our nets. Lord, knowing that You have many in this city who You have called to eternal life, who You have called to being disciples of Jesus. So Lord, I pray that You would make our joy complete by helping us, by empowering us to fulfill the privileged calling of being disciple-makers of Jesus Christ for His great glory. Amen.